Welcome to Lab Chats, a podcast from the team at LabStats. I'm Tyler Jacobson, your host for today's episode. Each week, we'll sit down with technology leaders in higher education to get the latest buzz and insights while we discuss current events, trends, problems, and solutions. Now let's get into it. With us today, we are having the pleasure of being joined by Anna Thompson, who works at University of Washington Bothell campus as a learning and access designer. So Anna, give me just a little bit of background on what a learning and access designer does, and then we can talk about some of the considerations of accessibility and accommodation. Hello, thank you so much for inviting me here today. Let me start with my background. My degrees are in IT and business, and I entered higher education working for IT as a help desk technician. Along the way, I switched over to teaching and learning and online education. In my position at University of Washington Bothell, I am part of the digital learning and engagement team located under IT. I support faculty with whatever they need so they can be successful in the classroom. I also support staff and lead our accessibility efforts on our campus and collaborate with our main campus in Seattle with initiatives and programs to promote accessibility. Excellent. So it sounds like you've got influence and and considerations in pretty much every department on campus and help the instructors be able to provide a more balanced, a more available curriculum. So that's great. As far as accessibility and accommodation, how big of an issue is this? How many students have special needs? What's the scope of what we're dealing with for the accessibility side of things? Accessibility and accommodation, they are much related, but accessibility refers to anyone or most everyone being able to access content or navigate an interface or an environment in a very similar way as someone without a disability. And uh, paraphrase from uh, the Department of Education, Office of Civil Rights Accessibility Definition. Accommodation, on the other hand, is making things accessible for specific people that need them in a certain way. And it's a model that we have used for many, many years in higher education. It is not cost effective. It is important. We will always continue to provide accommodations. It is the right thing to do, and it is the law as well. We're supposed to do that. But there's always a better way. It's important to always think about in terms of more more universal design, which means let's design content, environments, experiences that are the most accessible possible from the beginning instead of retrofitting accessibility. In thinking about numbers, people with accessibility, according to the CDC data from 2016, about 61.4 million of Americans reported they have some sort of disability. Many of them say they have some hearing trouble. Many of them say they have vision trouble. Many times they come with combinations of things. Then let's look at it, the professional world. According to the Center for Talent Innovation report, about 30% of working professionals have a disability that they reported, and 62% of employees may have an invisible or not easily identified disability. Let's look at students now. According to the National Center for Education Statistics, 19.4, and so sometimes I round that up to 20% 
of students who are registering to higher education institutions undergraduate, they reported that they have a disability. Now this number includes only those students who self-identified and registered with a local disability office. From anecdotal data in conversing with many professionals in different institutions of higher education, they told me that the number of actual students who do have an disability is closer to 30 or 35%. So it's a lot more than what we think. Why would those students not be self-reporting? If they are aware of the fact that they have an issue that they could report on a survey, why are they not letting the school know about it? Right, right. I mean, number one, it is voluntary. Uh, number two, it may be an issue of their afraid of being singled out, made fun of, being, they will be embarrassed about. Perhaps many times they think, and, and this is some of the feedback in talking to some students who have not self-reported, right? They think sometimes that they can do it. It's like, oh, I don't need those services. I can do it. Many students, for whatever reason, they miss that information. They bypass it. And then by the time they figure, somebody tells them, hey, you really need to apply. You need to, it, it's, it might be in the middle of the semester, in the middle of a quarter, their second or third year in school. And there's a lot that they need to do to get registered and then maybe even retake courses because they, they haven't done as well as they could have because they didn't have the support they needed. The bottom line is for various reasons, we can't rely entirely on the students to bring the, their issues forward to the school, whether it be that they don't wanna stand apart or whether they missed the survey or the questionnaire or just say, I can do this on my own without any help maybe that's going to be an issue there. So when students are looking at a campus, does the availability of resources impact what school they choose to attend? Definitely. The campus experience that they perceive when they're investigating locations to go to school and trying to decide where to attend will definitely include accessibility or disability services for students with disabilities. Last year, as part of the student technology report that EDUCAS produces, they had a section uh, having to do with accessibilities and disabilities. Interesting enough, within the data, that about half of the students who took it uh, said that they had a mental disorder and a little under half a learning disability, and then it goes down from there about 20%. It was some other. Vision was about 12%, and mobility was about 11%. One thing that I found very interesting in here is that out of those people who took the survey, 46% they had registered with their local office and they were approved for an accommodation. And 44% they said they had not registered, which brings us back to the importance of making content and experiences universally accessible for students because sometimes we don't know and students may not self-disclose. One of the things that you brought up in there is accommodation. And we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier. What is the difference between accommodation and universal design? An accommodation is when we provide services, content that is formatted to meet students' specific needs. They are specific for the student, for the situation, for the type of disability. So most of the time, accommodations created for one person will not work for somebody else. As part of the accommodation process, a student has to self-identify with the local disability services office 
they need to provide documentation, they may need to get tested, there's communication between the student and perhaps a physician, and then between the office and an instructor, as well as the office where any conversions that are needed may happen, testing center or proctoring facility. In short, all processes and arrangements needed to ensure that the student's needs are met. When they do identify that they have a special need, what are some of the resources that you guys can offer as an accommodation? One of the most common accommodations is allowing for extra time in quizzes or exams. We also provide note-taking services, whether that is via technology with a pen that can record the writing as electronic files or a person who will do note-taking. We also have American Sign Language interpreters. We provide captioning for videos and lectures. Another very common one is remediating documents in a course content, uh, PDFs, office documents, PowerPoints that are not accessible to assistive technologies such as screen readers or text-to-speech tools. Also, conversion of e-textbooks into an accessible format. On the other hand, universal design is a design of an environment or content so it can be accessed, understood, and used to the greatest extent possible in a similar manner, whether a person has a disability or not. This brings us back to the discussion about inclusion and diversity. The more inclusive we are, the more we'll design content and experiences that are universally accessible from the get-go, thus decreasing the need for accommodations. One thing we don't often think about is how universally accessible content can benefit more people than just those with disabilities. For example, caption benefits students who need to be in a quiet situation. Let's say, for example, their, their earbuds broke and they have to be in a quiet area. Well, it would be beneficial if they could at least see the captions to read the content of the video. English as a second language learners can also benefit from captions by being able to more easily identify technical terms or difficult words. How about someone who would like to use their commute to work or some other time to listen to readings that they have assigned in order to obtain a viable audio file from a PDF, it needs to be usable and accessible. Last but not least, those students who have disabilities and do not self-identify can benefit by content that is ready for them to use. And I can really see that because having those resources available for everybody at all times not only accounts for those that may have specifically requested every lecture to be in text, which may be closed captioning, but also some of the examples you brought up, if you're in the library and your headphones crap out, do you have to leave or can you just turn on the closed captioning and, and complete the work you are doing? So the advantage extends beyond those that would have identified a specific need to those that may take advantage of it in a moment's notice. For instance, when I was in school, when I took notes, I took notes in different colors and things like that, and I needed to have things in a very specific way, I would have given Oh, I would have given my graphing calculator to be able to have a recording of all of my lectures so that I could review them and say, oh, well, this is a missing spot in my notes. I didn't catch that. Let's go back to that portion of the lecture and I could fill in my notes. And 
from the school standpoint, like you have mentioned, accommodation is very much specific and it's in a, inefficient because it's catered for one person. How do you provide all of the resources in every channel as part of universal design? How do students find the closed captioning, the video, the special textbooks? Right. This is part of the makes me sad about a lot of the resources that have been made accessible. For example, when a publisher provides an, an editable version, a PDF of an ebook because of an accommodation, that needs to be used only by the student who had the accommodation. It cannot be given to other students, cannot be shared because of copyright. That uh, is one of the agreements between the publisher and the school. It cannot be legally shared. So this is why things like this is so important that when looking for content that goes into a course, that checking in and make sure that it is accessible or that they offer an accessible format because it might benefit those people who will not self-identify they need it. And that includes adding videos to a course. It should be captured. It can always be turned on for whoever needs it and it doesn't have to be turned on for everybody if they don't want it. We had talked, uh, actually, it was a couple of years ago now at a seminar, and I know that the term PDF and captioning was a little bit of a sore spot there because it's hard to make a PDF truly accessible, and captioning has limited accuracy, and 97% accurate leaves a lot to be desired when you're trying to communicate in volume. Have those things improved? Like, how do you make a PDF accessible and how do you improve the captioning? Well, uh, let me talk about PDFs first. So PDFs are ubiquitous. Everyone uses, everyone is familiar with them. They're easy to download, print, save, etc. What we don't hear about often is that PDFs are very, very inaccessible. And if the source document, if this came from a Word document or a PowerPoint that was created accessible, if it's saved properly, then it retains a lot of those things that are called tags, bits of information that identify pieces of this document or content. It identifies headings and lists and tables. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of jumbled text. Another thing that happens with PDFs is that many times when you create a, a PDF on the fly, the order in which content is read by a screen reader gets scrambled. So a person trying to listen to this will get so confused because, I mean, not only is one big jumble, but in, even if he has tags, but the reading order is scrambled, it will not make any sense. It will not make the same sense as someone who's looking at it because the, the two orders are different. For instance, you might get all of the headings for different charts all together and not the heading of the chart with what information is contained within that one chart. chart. Right. Is that pretty or, much it? Right, or you may jump around also. And then you have image PDFs. It's so easy to create an image PDF from scans, but printers cannot access it. And if the other side of that is, if the scan is of poor quality, they're gonna have all kinds of errors when uh, technologies try to access it to extract the text. Or imagine someone with perfect vision may have difficulty reading a PDF that is of poor quality with low contrast with smudges or annotations that came from the original which was used to scan it. Okay, regarding captioning, my recommendation is that initially, when you're choosing content that is already made to add courses, 
Select content that is captioned. There is a lot of high quality educational content available in the libraries via the subscriptions to many databases. And if needed, any instructor can get assistance from our great librarians. For content that you create, that you own, there are a lot of tools out there, but one that's really easy, fairly easy to use is YouTube. You can upload a video to YouTube, allow YouTube to create the automatic captions and edit those captions. And the video doesn't have to be public if you don't want it to be. It can just be unlisted. That means that anyone with a link or wherever it's embedded can view it. At our university, we have an, a tool called Panopto that we use for lecture capture and screen recording. Panopto also has a built-in engine to create automatic captions that can be imported after a video has been recorded or a video file has been uploaded. There are also third-party services that you can pay for, like such as 3Play Media, for example. They provide excellent service, but they are pricey. Our university also has a free captioning program. It applies to videos that were created by professors, videos that may be public, they're high impact, and they're reusable in several courses. Instructors can submit for this free captioning service as well. A great strategy to make captioning a lot easier is to have a transcript and use it to record your video. Then use the content from this transcript to create your captions. For example, YouTube allows you to upload a transcript and it runs it through a process to set timings so the captions match the audio on the video. One unit I forgot to mention earlier is Access Technology Services, who are the ones who manage the free captioning program that's offered at our university. They are at the Seattle campus. They're linked with the nationally recognized Duet Center, both ran by Dr. Cheryl Bergstaller, who is a leader in universal design and accessibility. There are many models out there. Different institutions have different models on how they provide accessibility. Some places may have a centralized office where instructors or staff can send videos to be captioned. Sometimes student employees are hired to caption videos for others. But regardless of the model at your institution, one thing is for certain, the responsibility to create and offer accessible content, it is on each one of us. If we don't know how to create accessible content, we should find ways to learn how and to seek support from our institutions and see what kind of programs are available to help us provide accessible content to our students. And that, that was one of the next questions that had come up for me was whose responsibility is it? So when you have an accessibility or a design department in the school, what resources do you guys offer to help the faculty and staff who may be honestly in over their head as far as truly understanding how to make the material accessible? Do they do you guys have a review process or the resources where you could step in to help them out? Is it primarily training? How do you help the owners of that content make it accessible? So at University of Washington, we have the centralized office that I mentioned earlier, Access Technology Services, who are the hub for proactive 
accessibility training and support. They also work with our disability resources for a student's office for certain accommodations, such as printing braille materials, and also work with our human resources office to provide accommodations for employees. Another aspect that they oversee is an organization of liaisons who are representatives from different areas of the university, could be staff or faculty, who have volunteered to learn more about accessibility. Our IT accessibility liaisons group is a grassroots approach to accessibility. Our group meets four times a year to network and receive training and exchange information and tips and tricks on how to make content more accessible, how to help each other, and share ideas how we can do better. I put together a course called Accessibility 101, Principles of Inclusive Design, that I have taught fully online several times, and I'm currently offering a self-paced version of it, which provides basics and foundation knowledge for accessibility, concepts of disability, uh, legal ramifications and risk for institutions and organizations, the specifics on how to create accessible content in Microsoft Office, Word documents, PowerPoint, Excel, as well as how to create accessible Canvas pages. Canvas is our learning management system and uh, Canvas pages are basically an HTML page. We also talk about PDFs, how we should not use them as much because they're less accessible than other types of documents, how to create alternate text for images. We also talk about general web accessibility, also has strategies on recognizing inaccessible content on the web and also how to be an advocate for accessibility. Aside from that, we've had and we continue to have workshops, webinars, and other trainings to keep on this valuable information. And finally, we also have Blackboard Ally is an LTI that uh, we've contracted with to be added to our Canvas learning management system. It's multi-purpose. It uh, scans all of the content and provides information on the accessibility of that content. At institutional level, at course level, it gives instructors information on specific files and how accessible they are. And then at the student level, it provides tools for students to download multiple formats of uploaded files. For example, a reading that is a PDF, they can download an audio file, an MP3 of that document. So a student that wants the text version of a lecture can find it very easily on Canvas. That would be great if you could do that. Um, what I, Ally does is create alternative formats of uploaded files or Canvas pages. So in terms of uploaded files, PDFs, Word documents, PowerPoint, or uploaded HTML files. Yes, it would be nice if we could convert a video into a different format like an audio file. Wink, wink, feature requests for Blackboard Ally. This is a little bit of a transition here. I know that when the pandemic hit, there were a lot of things that got disrupted. For instance, I've spoken with instructors that have talked to me that an, a remote class is not the same as an online class, that they're designed differently. What challenges did the pandemic create for you from a perspective of universal design? Well, many, not to say the least, was the additional work that it took to move everyone into a different format 
whether they were ready to do it or not. And in terms of challenges, the pandemic really brought out a lot of inequalities, technology, financial insecurity, employees, and students who have depended on internet connectivity and other services that were on campus, they had to now get those on their own. Also with all of the content having to be provided in digital format, it brought out how much of it was inaccessible to students and synchronous Zoom sessions to replace the face-to-face real-time class time. That was another challenge, not even taking into account those students who may have have needed live captioning for the classes. There was more awareness on how different remote teaching was from actual online teaching. They're two different formats. On a positive note, many institutions have become much more flexible with the students and their needs and offering things like recordings of lectures, which was so controlled previously, and streamlining document conversion more easily and quickly. We've heard this from instructors and IT people that, like you said, it was a huge abrupt change and there were a lot of things that instructors learned very, very quickly. So the next question that I have is where instructors have kind of been forced to do this in a in an remote format, has that really improved the instructor's familiarity with some of the resources and is that something that's going to provide long-term benefits even when we return to campus? I really think the pandemic allowed us to divert from business as usual quite a bit and because we needed to we've opened ourselves to new ways of doing things. It is amazing that we're in the business of education but there's so many things that move quite slow in education. We don't seem to learn fast or implement change fast, but but many institutions, but this allowed us to do things like create a course for teaching online, as many other institutions did to prepare faculty, and that provided an opportunity for all of us to be better and do better in what we do and for everyone to find opportunities to improve on course design, on accessibility of content, on alignment of content, on applying better practices for assessing student learning. From what I have noticed and the feedback that we've received from faculty, I think that we will come out much more knowledgeable in regards to creating more accessible and usable content. When we do return to campus, it sounds like the instructors are going to have a little bit of a boost from where they were two years ago on understanding how to make their Mm -hmm. materials accessible and more universal. I just wanted to wrap up with your thoughts on what does the future look like? Like 20 years ago, we were talking about automatic doors and cut curbs. Today, we're talking universal design. Is there anything we need to keep our eyes open for in the future that's going to be exciting? Oh, gosh, definitely. Um, One thing that I'm really excited at things like artificial intelligence that is the foundation on which things like the automatic life transcription that is now available on zoom runs also um, machine learning technologies imagine the possibilities not just to truly evaluate student learning and create customized experiences for our students but also have the technology get to the point where it can analyze students needs and address 
areas where students may be needing some additional help, perhaps students with disabilities as well, and be able to assist us do better with things we don't see, with those invisible disabilities or situations where a student may not need to self-identify any longer to get an accommodation. But as going through process, they can have more adaptive process of learning and they can get the learning in such a way that it will be most beneficial to them. I agree with that entirely. I'm excited about what the future has to hold. Moving from accommodation to true universal design where a student that has that 20-minute commute from campus, that 20 minutes re-listening to lectures on audio may mean the difference between struggling and thriving in school. And then having these resources available for people that are reluctant to draw attention to themselves, that they know with confidence that they don't have to draw attention to themselves. When they go to do their coursework, they just access the resources that are available for everyone. I think that that enriches the value that schools can provide to the students. It provides for better education and better experience for everyone involved. Yeah, um, accessible design helps everyone, absolutely. And and as I get older, I'm more and more aware of vision has gotten worse. And I, I didn't need to have class years ago, and now I do. I have to have classes to read my computer or to look, read on my phone. It's like, oh my gosh, I have a vision disability. <laughs> and my accommodations are my glasses, right? <laughs> Well, I've been in glasses since I was five, so <laughs> I've just found now that I can't hold things up close and read them. I have to, I start, I'm like, oh my gosh, I had to hold that farther away. So that also does bring up another really good point that where a student starts, something else may happen. Like you had mentioned broken arm. You never mm-hmm. know what resources students are going to need tomorrow. And so if right. we make everything available wherever possible, then it's just going to enrich the entire education experience. Yes. So thank you for joining us, Anna. Thank you so much, Tyler. That's all for today's episode of Lab Chats. Be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when a new Lab Chats episode is posted each week. We'll see you next time.